listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Continuing in the study of Mark, our reading today is Mark 3, 16 through 19a. Jesus went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. So he appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaan, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. And thanks for that reading, Luann. <clears throat> so before we dive into our passage, um, I think I need to apologize for some bad planning on my part with last week's sermon. Um, last week we talked about demons, which is not a topic we talk about very often here. Um, but I talked about demons on a family Sunday with kids in the sanctuary, um, and I got some feedback uh, from a few parents who weren't thrilled about that decision, understandably. Um, I know I heard um, a couple of the kids had nightmares, which I feel really awful about. I'm sorry about that. Um, A few of the adults might have had nightmares too, I don't know. Um, But uh, that was just really bad planning on my part, so uh, I apologize for that. I will do my best to keep sermons uh, on Family Sundays to a G rating, Um, and uh, moving forward, we'll, we'll, we'll try and navigate that a bit better. Um, We're not talking about demons today. Today, we are talking about the 12 disciples. They were kind of idiots, though, so you might have nightmares about this one, too. (laughs) We'll see how it shakes out. Um, Most of us who've heard the Jesus story are aware that he had 12 disciples, uh, 12 students who followed him, studied his teachings, were in his inner circle. Um, Even if you've never been to church at all or never picked up a Bible in your life, you've probably heard something about the 12 disciples. They show up in art a lot. Um, I think we got a picture of Da Vinci's Last Supper. This is probably the most famous example. Jesus having a final meal with his disciples the night he was arrested. Um, If anyone ever asks you why they're all sitting on the same side of the table, just say they were posing for the picture. Um, Anyway, Um, I actually have uh, this exact picture tattooed on my forearm. Um, Personally, I think mine is way cooler, uh, but to each their own. But that's a famous one. Um, And there's still some fascination with the 12 disciples in, like, pop culture today. It's not just Renaissance art. Um, Has anyone in here heard of the TV show called The Chosen? Yeah, a few folks. I see some people nodding. Um, it's a pretty good show. I think it's on Peacock, but I know there's, a, there's an app where you can watch it for free. Um, and it's a show 
uh, about Jesus and the 12 disciples, but primarily it kind of creatively fills in the gaps and invents like backstories for the 12 disciples, and it is, it is really well done. It's a fascinating show. So this is one to check out if you've never seen it, The Chosen. So we get the 12 disciples, we get this long list of names in this passage, <clears throat> stuff we usually just kind of skim over when we're reading it on our own. Um, but there's actually a lot of other things going on in this passage too. There's stuff here that we miss. There are details in our reading for today that would have been like super clear to the original audience, but it's just like right over our heads. For example, um, Jesus goes to the top of a mountain. That's like how this passage begins. Uh, You might be familiar with like the trope of a religious sage or a guru sitting at the top of a mountain and like someone has to climb up to receive wisdom. We see this in like movies a lot. You know, Doctor Strange had to do this. Batman had to do this at one point. Um, That is not exactly what's going on here though. The original audience, the Jewish audience, that would have heard this story originally would have had a very different and very specific image in their mind. When they heard about Jesus going to the top of a mountain, they would have been thinking about Moses. In the Exodus story, Moses famously climbs up to the top of Mount Sinai where he receives the Ten Commandments. How many of us are familiar with this one from like movies? Um, Yeah, just about all of us, excellent. Um, The 12 tribes of Israel in the story of Exodus have just been liberated from slavery in Egypt. They follow Moses to this mountain where they encounter God. And then God commissions these 12 tribes to be God's people and to take God's blessing to the nations. Now, I know it's already up there, but how many disciples were there? And how many tribes were there? Are we, are we seeing connections? Are we connecting dots yet? Jesus climbs to the top of a mountain, just like Moses. He calls to himself 12 disciples who represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He's like dramatically reenacting the origin story of God's people. He's hitting reset. He's saying that this movement, his students, are going to continue this mission of partnering with God to bring grace and blessing and hope to the world. It's a pretty bold vision for the church, right? It's one that, like, if we're honest, the church has had mixed results in implementing. Um, It's ambitious. It's grandiose. We might even say dangerous, Uh, To make a parallel, imagine today if, like, someone got a bunch of people together in Philadelphia and they called themselves the Founding Fathers. Like, that would turn some heads. Um, If they wrote a new Declaration of Independence and then marched up to Boston and dumped tea into the heart, like, we would know what's going on, right? Everyone would get that. It's dangerous. It's revolutionary. It's maybe even treasonous. Something like this could get ugly really quick. Jesus is presenting his following, his movement, as a new sort of Israel. People can get killed for that sort of thing. These are just some of the details we miss because we're removed from this story by about 2,000 years of context and history. But that's kind of the radical 
string going through this passage. Um, From there, Mark gives us the names of the 12 disciples. Let's put the Last Supper back up so we can take a look at these guys. Um, They look nothing like this, by the way, the pasty skinny guy in the middle as Jesus. Terrible rendition. Um, But we know this one. So let's kind of go through this because there's a lot here. There's a lot of info we can glean about this crew from Mark's commentary. First, we get Simon, who Jesus nicknames Peter. Da Vinci actually, like, determined who was who, so we're going we're gonna to learn a little bit about that today. Um, so Peter, or Petros, is the Greek word for rock, so uh, Jesus basically calls this guy Rocky, and we're given no explanation as to why. He's just called Rocky. Other Gospels try to explain this. Some of the Gospels that were written later, they try to fill in the gaps in Mark's story. The most famous explanation comes from Matthew, where Jesus is like, on this rock I will build my church. That's nice, but that's not in Mark's version of the story. Mark doesn't give us an explanation. Um, And in fact, the next time Mark mentions rocks, uh, it's actually in the very next chapter, just a few sentences after this, when Jesus tells the parable of the sower. How many of us are familiar with the parable of the sower? Story, excuse me, of a farmer who's throwing seeds, and he mentions the rocky soil which symbolizes people who hear the message of Jesus, they receive it with joy, but it doesn't sink in. Maybe that's what Jesus is going for here. Maybe Peter, as we're gonna see in the story, is like a blockhead who just keeps missing the point. We don't know exactly. Then we get James and John, uh, these two uh, fine-looking young men right here. Um, Jesus nicknames them the Sons of Thunder. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Aramaic word, but uh, good on you for trying, Luann. Um, Sons of Thunder, it sounds sounds like a a metal band. Um, Oh, hit the next. Did it move? It should move over to them on the slides. There we go. Awesome. The Sons of Thunder. Um... Sounds like a wrestling tag team or a hair metal band, something like that. Um, The word that Mark renders Sons of Thunder is notoriously hard to translate. We're not quite sure what it means. There's a lot of different theories. Um, It could be a good thing. It could mean that like James and John were really well-spoken. They had thunderous voices, Sons of Thunder. Uh, It could also mean that they're the kind of guys you want on your side in like a fight. Some scholars think it was an insult, like Jesus was making fun of these guys. Um, These are the two brothers who are always arguing about who's the greatest, who's going to get to sit at Jesus' right hand. Uh, We even get a story where Jesus and the disciples get kicked out of a village, and James and John tell Jesus to call down fire on the villagers, and he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. It could mean they were hotheads. It could mean that they drank too much. That's one of the other theories out there. Sons of thunder. We don't know exactly. Then we get Andrew, uh, Peter's brother, pictured here saying, not it. Um, That's Andrew. Um, So you get Andrew and Peter who are brothers. There's actually a few pairs of brothers here. Um, Andrew and Peter, James and John. I think if we zoom out, we see the other James and Thaddeus. Some people, uh, some manuscripts refer to them as brothers. All that harkens back to those family relationships and those original 12 tribes. 
How are we doing so far? I know this is a lot. I had to take a drink, so are we tracking with this? I'll take your silence as a yes. Uh, we get Philip and Bartholomew. We know almost nothing about those guys, um, so that's not very helpful. But then we get <clears throat> Matthew, the tax collector. We know about Matthew. He's the guy who sold out, sold out his own people to work for the Romans. Then we get Thomas, whose claim to fame is that he doubted the resurrection. There's that famous story when Jesus comes back and he appears to the disciples, and Thomas is the one who's like, nah, I don't buy it. That's Thomas. Then we get Simon the Canaanian, uh, which is the Aramaic word for zealot. You've probably heard of Simon the Zealot before. That's how some older translations render it. The Zealots were a violent, revolutionary Jewish political movement uh, that was dedicated to overthrowing Rome. So that's Simon's background. Jesus has a zealot in his ranks. And then last but not least, we get who? Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Pictured here holding the bag of coins that he was paid for selling out Jesus. There's actually some debate over Judas's name, uh, Iscariot. It's probably not a last name um, because that wasn't so much a thing back then. It's probably a title. Um, It could denote where he was from, or it could mean he was part of the Sakari movement. The Sakari were another violent, even more radical Jewish political movement at the time. Um, they were basically terrorists. Think like a, like a Jewish Al-Qaeda sort of idea. Um, so he could have been Sakari. And that's the 12. So if we zoom in, or sorry, zoom out on these folks. We got a blockhead fisherman and his brother. We got a couple of hot-headed drunks. We've got a tax collector, a doubter, a traitor, at least two armed revolutionaries. This is the crew God's going to use to bring hope and blessing to the world. I like that some of you are laughing. That's fantastic. Um, The gospel writers don't give us uh, a very flattering view of the disciples. None of the gospel writers do. But Mark especially really forces us to sit with a paradox here. He forces together um, the hope, the promise, the radical, revolutionary nature of this movement and what God is doing with the fact that these are incredibly imperfect, sinful human beings. You can say some good stuff about this group. Um, It crosses boundaries. That's a plus. You've got uh, a tax collector and a zealot in the same room. That wouldn't normally happen, so that's a powerful statement. Um, All of these guys left everything to follow Jesus. That's more than I've ever had to do. With the exception of Judas, who killed himself, and John, uh, who died in exile, all the others according to church tradition, were martyred for their faith. They all died for their faith in Jesus. These were the leaders of the early church. This was the crew that followed Jesus around from village to village, uh, never having quite enough faith, always seeming to miss the point, always having to be corrected. This is the church, basically. Mark forces us to confront this tension 
the revolutionary hope of the Jesus movement, along with the fact that it's made up of flawed human beings who frequently miss the point. If that's not an analogy for the church, I don't know of a better one. So often, I think we tend to operate in extremes, um, where things are either like really good or really bad. Um, It's this or that. It's black or white. Uh, If you've ever talked to anyone about the church before, you've encountered this. Uh, If you ever saw a debate between, like, a Christian and a non-Christian, then you probably heard one person say that, like, the church is the greatest thing since sliced bread. It can do no wrong. Um, Or it's the worst thing to ever happen to humanity, right? Those are the options we're given. I felt both those extremes in the same day before. Um, I go to church, I have an awesome time, I have a good conversation with someone after the service, Um, something moves me in worship, I leave and it's like, man, church is great, that was awesome, I love church. Then I get home and I check my email, should I have a hair in my mouth? I check my email and I've got like five emails from people complaining about things, I did something wrong, I said something wrong, something was supposed to happen and it didn't. It's like, I hate church, man. Church is the worst. (laughs) It's like within an hour. Maybe some of us can relate. This is the nuance we've got to keep in mind. We've got to learn to kind of live in this tension when we talk about the church. It's not either or. It's both and. The church is both an incredible, wonderful community of faith where we can find hope and joy and inspiration And it's an institution made up of flawed human beings who do terrible things to each other. Amen. If you've ever been hurt by the church, if you've ever been judged, abused, made to feel like you don't belong, don't let anyone minimize that experience. That's real. That pain is real. It's awful. And if the church has saved your life, If it's given you hope and purpose and meaning, don't let anyone take that away from you either. That's amazing. That's real. And if you've ever experienced both of those things in the same day, welcome to church. (laughs) A clapping. I believe the church is the hope of the world. That's why I do what I do. Um, But I've also seen the church hurt a lot of people, people I care about, people I love. That's also kind of why I do what I do. I want to stop the church from doing that. Um, But as Christians, we've got to have a clear head about this. We can't get sucked into the extremes. The church is going to let you down. This church will let you down. I will let you down at some point. I will say something wrong or I'll do something wrong. I'll end a sermon with a ghost story and give your kids nightmares. It's gonna happen. I'm gonna screw up. But this church or some other church might also save your life. You might find welcome and inclusion like you've never seen anywhere else. You might find meaning and hope. You might see the face of God and get to actually participate in the work that God is doing in our community. The church is both of those things. And it's because of that that everyone belongs. For the life of me, I don't understand churches that put up barriers that say, like, these people are in and these people are out. We want these folks, not so much these folks. I don't get it. 
I'm not sure if they've ever read the gospel. The disciples are a mess. The disciples are a reminder that everyone belongs. Everyone has a place here because we are all human. We're all sinful. We all mess up and do terrible things to each other. But we're also capable of so much more with Jesus at the center. So maybe you're a hothead who flies off the handle. Or uh, maybe you've got an ego that gets you into trouble. Maybe uh, you're a sellout or you're afraid of failing. Maybe you struggle with addiction or shame. Maybe you're a hypocrite. There's plenty of those in the church, right? Always room for one more. (laughs) Maybe you wrestle with doubt. Not really sure if you buy in to all this stuff. Or maybe you've done something terrible in your past. Maybe you're a traitor. If Judas was welcomed to the table, if he belonged, if God could use this mixed bag of wannabe revolutionaries and sellouts to advance the kingdom and proclaim the message, then God can use us too. There's a place for you at this church. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know all the answers or have it all figured out. Uh, It's okay if you come with baggage from past church experiences. A lot of us are carrying some of that around. You'll probably screw up at some point and let someone down. That's okay. Um, Stick around long enough and it'll happen to you too. But you can use your gifts here. You can connect and belong. You can grow at this church. And with Christ at the center, this group of flawed human beings I'm looking, out, looking at right now and the folks watching online can do absolutely amazing things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the tension that we see in the 12 disciples. The promise and the failures. It's a good reminder, God, that we are not alone when the church fails us. We're not alone when we fail. And God, it's a good reminder that we also belong. Guide this church, Lord. Empower us for the work you've called us to. Give us your wisdom and your grace. Shape us in Christ-likeness and maturity to be a community of blessing and hope, even in the midst of our imperfections. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.